You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Manly Encounters with Jesus, presented by Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. And we are continuing our series called Manly Encounters with Jesus. And last week we, had a t- we got to take a look at the story of Jesus' trial with Pilate in John chapter 18. And we saw that uh, a few characters that juxtaposed with Jesus. For instance, we saw the Jewish people. The Jewish people who accused Jesus of things, put him on trial. But they also wanted to be kept pure. They wanted to preserve themselves for the Passover. So they refused to enter Pilate's palace. However, everything about what they were doing was completely impure. They were trying to put Jesus, an innocent man, to death. They had conducted trials at times that were not allowed. They had false witnesses come. There was bribery involved. It was a total sham. Then we looked at Barabbas, a man whose name means son of the father. And Barabbas, of course was put in prison because he had led an uprising. And the Jewish people wanted Barabbas to go free and instead wanted Jesus to be crucified. Well, it's interesting that Jesus was the one being accused of leading, uh, of, of kind of promoting some sort of uprising that was going on. At least that's what the Jewish people were saying. And Pilate was concerned because they referred to Jesus, or at least Jesus, there was that, that thing about Jesus being a king. Barabbas, on the other hand, was the one really doing the uprising. He was the one really trying to revolt against Caesar, against the Roman rulers. But Jesus is truly the son of the Father. Barabbas, that's just what his name means. Jesus is the son of the Father. And not only was he the son of the Father, but his uprising was not against the Roman Empire. It was against sin and death. He came to make all men free, Jews and Greeks alike. Then we looked at Pilate, Pilate the governor of Judea, the man who sat on the judge seat in order to rule in Jesus' case. And a judge concerns himself with the facts. What is truth? But Pilate said, what is truth? He made it very clear that he was not interested in the truth. He was interested in convenience. Whatever it was that was going to keep his position secure, keep Israel at some sort of healthy balance, keep people from revolting, he didn't care if it even cost Jesus' life. And then we looked at Jesus himself, the, the true, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that he was the one who came for truth and put his convenience on the line even when it cost his life. And the four things we noticed We talked about what does it mean to be a man of God and just looking at the story. What are four distinct things that stand out about Jesus' behavior in the story? Well, the first thing is that he treated each person as though they were eternal soul created in the image of God and in need of salvation. He treated Pilate as an equal. He wasn't afraid of Pilate. And he wasn't afraid of Pilate because he understood that God's authority trumps man's authority. The third thing that we saw in Jesus' presentation with Pilate was that he held on to the convictions of truth instead of sacrificing it for his convenience. And then the last thing we looked at was that when Pilate brought Jesus out to the crowds, he said, behold the man. 
And the ironic thing was that Pilate was really prophesying about it without even realizing it. Because Jesus is the second Adam. He is the perfect representation of what it means to be a man. Just as God said, behold the man when he created Adam, here Pilate looks at Jesus and says, behold the man. Behold the man. Well, today we're continuing with this, with our series with Jesus' encounter with a dead man. Jesus' encounter with a dead man. We're going to look at the story of Lazarus this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 11 as we read the story. Begin in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I am not there, so that, there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the, of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she sent, she sent out to meet him. She went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The rabbi is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in her home, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Well, it's probably not a story we often read during Easter, but I want to make some connections here between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. And note that this is the seventh sign that John records in his gospel. The first one is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. There are a number of miracles that John records. He records seven of them. Very purposefully, he's teaching us about Jesus, and there's a lot of symbolism. In the previous chapters, there's talk about light and so forth. In this chapter, Jesus makes reference to light. It's a very, it's a very beautiful passage of Scripture. But I, what I want to focus on are two things. I want to focus on the human responses in the story and also Jesus' responses in the story. Notice the, the, the juxtaposition, just as we saw with Jesus at his trial with Pilate. So let's take a look at some of the human responses that we see in the story. The first one comes out in verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, assuming that's all they said, they didn't give any further instruction. It kind of reminds you of the first miracle. Remember when Jesus' mother, Mary, came to him and said, they're out of wine, right? So they give them a request. But there's really... A strong desire here because they know Jesus can do something. They know he can heal them. This is a call of desperation. It's the response of desperation. And, and I don't know about you, but I've called out to the Lord at times in desperation. Lord, please do something. Right? I think we all have. Sometimes we wait until the very last minute, until we're at a desperate point to ask the Lord for help, even when we should do it at the very beginning. The second thing that I want to point out today is notice this response, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. I was reading uh, something that John Calvin wrote about the disciples. He said it must have taken some great patience to deal with these people. I mean, they weren't the brightest light bulbs in the box, right? (laughs) At times they seem a few fries short of a Happy Meal for sure. But here they, you know, Jesus is talking in the euphemism of death and he's using sleep which is pretty common as we read in Scripture. It's appropriate, too, because this is a temporary sleeping, right? Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. But they think he's really sleeping. Well, just go wake him up, right? He'll sleep, he'll get better, right? Well, the other thing that's, that's, uh, that stands out in this passage is that he heard that Lazarus was sick. And what does he do? The one he loved, and he stayed behind for two more days. Now, does that seem like an act of love? 
that he would stay behind instead of rushing to see him? Well, if you read that passage carefully, you'll notice that Jesus realized that he'd been dead by the time that messenger had gotten there, Lazarus was gone. And so it was already by the time he leaves, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. For four days. Well, this brought a lot of confusion. Why does Jesus act this way? What's going on with the disciples? They're all confused. That's a human response. Another thing that stands out in this passage, in verse 1, they express concern because in chapter 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He performs a miracle. He heals a man of blindness on the Sabbath, and everyone is outraged. And so they try to stone him, but Jesus kind of slips out, and he, he heads out to the Jordan, and he kind of lays low like he does at some times in his ministry, and he lays low for a couple of days. Well, the disciples are concerned. Rabbi, you're going to head back to Jerusalem, to Judea? just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, they're going to stone you. Notice the response by Thomas. We often refer to him as Thomas the Doubter, right? And and Carl's going to share with us that story next week. Thomas called Didymus, which means twin. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, you may interpret this as what extreme loyalty that this guy is going to, he's saying, you know what? I don't care. We're going to go out with Jesus and we'll die with him. But there's a couple things that stand out. First of all, Thomas has already committed Jesus' death. He's already like, well, he's a goner. We'll just go and die with him. The other thing that stands out to me is, I wonder if this is meant as one of those underhanded comments, you know? You know, like your spouses say to you, fine, we'll do it your way, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I wonder if that's, the, if that's kind of the sarcasm that Thomas had, the sort of skeptic, okay, well, We'll do it your way then. We'll go and die with you. Well, what are, they, what are they expressing? Well, they're expressing fear. They're all afraid. They're afraid at what might happen. But really, to be honest, the safest place is to be next to Jesus. Well, up until the last week of his life, right? The safest place for them, because nobody can touch him. Even when they try to stone him, he somehow slips through the, cl- the crowds. And then, of course, there are these responses. Mary and Martha, when they come out to meet Jesus, give identical responses. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many of you, when a loved one has passed away, have said, why God? Does this strike you as being maybe irreverent? That Jesus would go all of that way, go into harm's way to minister to them, and the first thing they do is express this to him? Actually, I think, I don't know, I don't know, a a day goes by where I don't ask God why. Why, God, did you take my daughter away six months ago? Why? I think that's a completely natural response. And we'll look at this in just a minute. But when they make that response, when they say that, they're expressing that God can do something. It kind of goes along with what Scott was saying a couple weeks ago is that there's really only two conclusions that we have about circumstances. Either God orchestrates them, or God allows them to happen. And so by expressing this, they are saying, Jesus, you could have done something. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? And we'll look at that in just a moment. But they're expressing anger, a very natural response to the loss of a loved one. In verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. You know, what is it with people kind of giving their theology to Jesus? You know, 
Remember the woman at the well in Samaria, right? She gets into a theological discussion with Jesus. And Jesus kind of went, hold on a second. Let's talk about this for a minute. Well, this is really kind of a hot topic issue in that day. Because there were two groups. There was one that believed in the resurrection and one that didn't believe in the resurrection. What, Je- what, what Martha is doing with Jesus is she's saying, okay, all right, Jesus, I'm the one who believes in the resurrection, right? She's stating the statement of beliefs. So I've got that badge, right, that says I'm, I'm the resurrectionist. I believe in the resurrection at the last day. Well, notice something else. The Jews say, could not he who opened the blind man's eyes, so they're making reference to what just occurred, a few months back, assuming it was a few months back, have kept this man from dying. Take a look at this next statement. He had been in the grave for four days, and he was sealed in the tomb. What does that tell you about what they believed? Well, it tells you that they really didn't believe Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Even though Martha says, I believe even now God will give you whatever you ask, It doesn't show it, right? It doesn't show it because the Jews believed something. They believed that the fourth day, the body and the soul separated. And so once the the body had been dead for four days, it was a goner. There was no turning back. There was nothing like that. So for Jesus to raise someone from the dead, which he has done on a number of occasions, that would be impossible. But this would be really, really impossible, right? This would be really impossible. And so what they're expressing is, they're expressing confinement. Even their own theology confines them about God. It confines them. The next thing that stands out to me is, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He's seen something, and I think Jesus is really moved to tears. He is seeing the deprivation of human beings. You know, it says that Jesus wept. And a lot of people say, well, Jesus wept because he experienced, he saw the lack of faith in them. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe what Jesus saw was the pain and the sorrow, and he experienced it himself of the loss of a loved one. He's experiencing what it's like to be a human being He's probably frustrated because this is not how he created the world. He created the world to be joyful and wonderful, a place without sin and suffering and death. And now he sees sin and suffering and death and a lack of hope. Well, the next thing that stands out in verse 39, But Lord, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Remember, Jesus tells Martha, Martha, open the grave. Right? If you have a King James Version of the Bible, it says, but Lord, he stinketh, is what it says. <laughs> well, Jesus' request kind of makes Martha a little bit squeamish, a little bit uncomfortable. And sometimes, and that's how I feel when I, that's how I, feel when I wear a tie, too. <laughs> I feel that discomfort, that awkwardness, right? You want me to do what? Sometimes Jesus' requests for us make us feel a little awkward. The next thing, of course, is the last thing, and that is mortality. Lazarus is dead. He is gone. We are experiencing the response of human nature, and that is the problem with human nature is that all of us will die. That's the problem with life. It ends in death. These are 
human responses for sure. But more than that of being human responses, these are really human conditions, aren't they? These are human conditions that we experience. And where do we turn to help us with these human conditions? Where do we go to relieve us of the pain and the anger and the suffering, the mortality? Where where do we turn to? Well, a lot of people turn to religion, right? Especially on a day like today, on Easter, we drive down Ritchie Highway and there's going to be cars lined up all the way outside these churches. And people, you know, maybe want answers. Well, here's what our friend, uh, I don't know if if you know this guy, Jesse Ventura, remember him? He was a real winner, wasn't he? Jesse, Jesse the Body Ventura, as I remember him from the days of WWF. And then when he became governor of Minnesota for a short time, he was Jesse the Mind Ventura, right? Well, here's what he said about religion. He said, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. That was from his interview in Playboy in 1999 is when he said this. Well, what do you think about that? Does that make you angry that he said that? Well, you know, part of me looks at this and I'm like, well, what does that guy know? But the other part of me thinks, you know what? I have to turn outside of myself because if I'm standing at Lazarus's grave, if I'm thinking of the times in my life where I experienced some of these responses, these conditions, this is not a self-help thing. I can't self-help myself out of some of these issues. I am a weak-minded person. I am a weak person. I'm a weak person and I need help. So in some ways, what Jesse Ventura might have said is right, but I don't think that he has the answers to get rid of these conditions. About religion, D.T. Niles said this. He said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar that he's found food and where to find food. And I think of myself, well, that's so true because I turn to Christians I don't just turn to religion, I turn to Christians to help me find my way through life. To help me struggle and wrestle with some of these issues that I have. Christianity is very important for me. But notice what Catherine Walden said, because I think sometimes people look at Christians, they look at the church and they think, I don't want anything to do with that. But look at what she says about Christians and Christianity. She says, it seems a lot of Christians are quick to condemn the world and write its inhabitants off as lost causes. It's odd, though. Jesus never did. He healed and lovingly confronted. Jesus engaged and walked among his enemies, not to breathe fire upon them, but to breathe life into them. He could only do so by being a part of their lives. He didn't write books. He didn't constrain his, uh, constrain his preaching to only the synagogues. He didn't stand aloof, bad-mouthing the world and his enemies to his disciples. No, Jesus deliberately walked and lived amongst those he came to serve. And I think to myself, yeah, that's the one I want, right? That's who I want. I don't want just Christians. I don't want just religion. I want that guy. I want Jesus. It's interesting, uh, many of you know this guy, Carl Jung. Well, Carl Jung did some experiments as a psychiatrist with alcoholics. And what Carl Jung found out by many different uh, trials and errors is that there was really only one cure for alcoholism. And notice what he says. He talks about the Oxford group. The Oxford group is kind of a a stem of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, or at least what it used to be. He says, when a member of the Oxford group comes to me in order to get treatment, I say, you are in the Oxford group. And as long as you are there, you settle your affair with the Oxford group. I can't do it better 
than Jesus. I can't do it better than Jesus. Because Carl Jung understood that Jesus is the cure for the human condition. Jesus is the cure for the human condition. And here in John chapter 11, Jesus appears in a place where there's a lot of human condition. And he gives us some wonderful responses. Take a look at this. First of all, when they reach out to him in desperation, Jesus brings comfort. When they reach out to him, Jesus is there. When they have questions, Jesus brings comfort. When there's confusion, Jesus brings clarity. And the story about the man born blind, remember the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, whose fault is it that this man is born blind? And Jesus says, it's no one's fault. He was born blind so that God may be glorified. He brings purpose. He brings clarity. He brings answers in the midst of confusion. The reason he waited for four days wasn't to be disrespectful, wasn't to show that he wasn't a good friend, wasn't to not be caring. The reason he waited four days was to blow away their expectations and tear away their confinement and their limited understanding. When we're afraid, Jesus brings faith. Even in the midst of his own peril at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus expresses some real concern, some real anxiety. But he also has the faith knowing that God's kingdom, God's authority trumps man's. And when we're angry, and when we're angry for good reason and just reason, Jesus brings assurance. I really believe that saying, asking God why is one of the best questions we can ask God. Because I believe that God will answer those questions in his time and in his way. We may not be ready for it at the time. It may take a long time. But God responds. When we ask God why, he gives a dialogue with us. He helps us to understand in some way. Here he brings assurance and he tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And when we're confined by our limited understanding, when we're confined by our own sin and our own struggles, Jesus brings freedom. He breaks the chains and causes our eyes to be opened. Even when we, even when we say, you know what, God, this is what I think about you, here Jesus comes all this way to break the misunderstanding and the confinement about what he is limited to doing. And of course, when we're deprived, when we feel the sadness and the sorrow, Jesus brings real hope. Let me tell you something. There is no replacement for doing a funeral for a Christian person. I'll tell you what. I've done, I've done a funeral for someone that was not a believer. And it's just the, it's the saddest thing in the world. And it's sad because I'm not going to get up there and lie to people. I'm not going to say you know, what, I, what I really believe. But at the same time, there's no hope. There's no hope. But I'll tell you what, I did a, I did a funeral uh, maybe a, a month or two ago for, um, for a family. And I'll tell you what, it was, it was just beautiful. I mean, it was bittersweet. It was sorrowful. It was hard. But here, this family rejoiced in knowing that this, that their father, their grandfather, their husband was in heaven with Jesus. They had real hope. That's real hope. Jesus brings hope in the resurrection. And when, we're, when we have discomfort, when we feel awkward about things, Jesus brings acceptance. Consider that one of the women here is Mary Magdalene. 
Many of you remember the story about Mary Magdalene. It was a big party. And a lot of people were there, a lot of Jewish people, a lot of officials, and Jesus was there. And Mary, seemingly out of nowhere, decides that she's going to pour really expensive oil on Jesus' feet and wipe his feet with her hair in public. This must have been really awkward, you know? One of those moments where everyone's like, yikes, what's going on? Simon, the guy who was in charge of the party, is hosting the party, speaks out against it. Judas, Jesus' own disciple, speaks out against it. You know, if it were me... I think I would feel really awkward. Whoa, okay, you know, I'm going to keep my distance from this person for a while. And I'd have some real explaining to my wife to do. But, <laughs> but Jesus turns a potentially very awkward, embarrassing moment into acceptance. And he accepts Mary. He confirms her in front of everyone else. What she is doing is a beautiful thing, he said. And of course, the last thing. When we experience mortality... Jesus gives life here. He raises Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. He raises him from the grave. Jesus is the cure for the human condition. Another thing that stands out to me in this story are the characters that are involved, the main family. We have Martha, we have Mary Magdalene, and, of course, we have Lazarus, right? Well, Mary Magdalene, along with that story about washing Jesus' feet with her hair, one of the things about her is that she is said to have a sinful past. And some people interpret that as being the same woman that is brought to Jesus by the Pharisees, and where the Pharisees say, this woman was found committing adultery, we should stone her. Right? And what does Jesus say? He used without sin, cast the first stone. Of course, the Pharisees walk away, and Jesus says to her, Where are your accusers? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And many people feel that because of that experience where Jesus saved her life and intervened on her behalf, she was so overwhelmed with joy, thanksgiving, and devotion that she poured out that perfume on Jesus' feet. Well, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But we do know that she was very grateful to Jesus. And she also had some sort of sinful life. Martha, what we know about Martha comes from Luke 10, most of it, where Jesus is invited over to a a little party or a little dinner at their house. Martha is the good Jewish woman. She's in the kitchen cooking and cleaning and getting everything ready to go. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And so Martha, what does she do? She comes out and she's like, Jesus, tell my sister to come help me with the, the chores. Tell her to help me get things ready. And Jesus says, she's doing the better thing. Well, the way I see Martha, and the way I see Martha in this story, is someone who has all her ducks in a row. She's the organized one. She's the good sister. Mary's the one that's kind of aloof. If I knew more about little women, I could make some reference between one woman and one girl or the other girl. Anyone who's read that book, please shout out some answers. (laughs) Okay, good. Carlene always watches those, and I'm like, okay, well, I think some, sport, some sports are on. Even if it's NASCAR, I'll, I'll watch it. Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, you see the contrast. Martha is someone who, who, who really, you know, she has all the answers. And look at this story. Who does Jesus spend most of his time talking to? Martha. Not Mary. Martha. 
He spends most of his time talking to the woman who seems to have everything in a row. And he asks her questions. And he makes statements to her. When he says, your brother will rise, what does she say? Oh, I know that he will rise on the last day. She's giving a theological statement, right? And he says, I am the resurrection life. The one who believes in me will live. And even though he dies, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? And then, and then he said, and then what was her response? Her response wasn't yes or no. Her response was, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Another theologically wonderful statement that she makes. Again, expressing that she's got everything in a row. Well, then Jesus takes her to the tomb and says, unroll the stone. And her, her, her statement, of course, I mean, because she, she's organized. She knows what everything's going on. She says, but Lord, he's been there four days. He stinketh. And Jesus says, Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Why does Jesus do this miracle? Well, I think he did these mirac- this miracle for a number of things, for a number of people. We know he does it for his disciples. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus became sick so that you may believe. We know he's probably doing it for the Jewish people that are there. I think he's doing it for Martha too. The one who we might look and say, Martha has got everything together. She's a wonderful woman of God. Look at, look at the way that she runs her family. Look at the way that she knows her theology. Jesus is coming to blow away even Martha's expectations. But whether we're a, per, we're a person that we would consider a very good person, or whether we are a person like Mary who may have had a sinful past, or whether we're like Lazarus and just dead, Jesus came to die for each and every one of us. He came to give us life. No matter what our condition, we all, no matter what our past, no matter what our future, all of us need that life. And Jesus said himself in John 10.10, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly, to give it to the fullest. And to demonstrate that, he died for us while we were still sinners, the Bible tells us. Christ died for us. And then, on the third day, he rose from the dead. To demonstrate to us that he is life, and life is only found in him. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. I'm going to close in reading a statement, um, a quote from a book that we're reading in Bible study, our men's small group, uh, from this book called Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge. And it's a wonderful book, and I was really struck by this statement. But as I'm reading this statement, I want, to ask, I want you to ask a couple of things. First of all, I want you to ask, do I have what he's talking about? Do I have what he's talking about? Is that raining... Uh, is that resounding in me, or am I missing something? Because notice what he says about life with Jesus. Here's what he says. We need Jesus like we need oxygen, like we need water, like the branch needs the vine. Jesus is not merely a figure for devotions. He is the missing essence of your existence. Whether we know it or not, we are desperate for Jesus. To have Jesus, really have him, 
is to have the greatest treasure in all worlds. To have his life, joy, love, and presence cannot be compared. To know him as he is, is to come home. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. You are meant to have this Jesus more than you have each new day, more than you have your next breath. For heaven's sake, he is your next breath. You are meant to share life with him, not just a glimpse now and then at church, not just a rare sighting. And you are meant to live his life. The purpose of his life, death, and resurrection was to ransom you from your sin, deliver you from the clutches of evil, restore you to God so that his personality and his life could heal and fill your personality, your humanity, and your life. This is the reason he came. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.